History 101. What's up, everybody, and welcome to Gaming History 101, the Retro Video Games Podcast. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Fred Rojas, and joining me from the sands of time is none other than Mr. Jam Elias. How you doing, sir? Oh, I'm doing very good, Fred. Uh, I should try and make a mistake or something so I can go back and rewind that. But you know. I know, and now people <laughs> think it's a Prince of Persia episode, and they're all excited <laughs> for that, and it's fucking not. <laughs> <laughs> Finally! <laughs> well, and I did tease this inappropriately uh, because I said this was going to be, this week was going to be a very popular franchise, and then um, people... <laughs> Uh, and then we're not doing that. We're actually doing um, what we usually do for the new year, which is our fives and tens episodes. So uh, it's going to be 2016. So we're going to talk about the years ending in one and six uh, in the annals of time, starting at the past and moving forward. If you're paying attention, we are about to come full circle. Next year will be our last one. But then I was listening to those episodes and we don't get too far we get to about the 90s in most of them. So that means we can do five more years and go around again. Yeah. So, anyway, how you doing, sir? I'm doing very good, Fred. <clears throat> Christmas has come and gone. Christmas has so come fast. and gone. Yes. <laughs> Boxing Day has come and gone. <laughs> yeah, no. Did you like those Boxing Day deals? There was Boxing Day deals. Oh, yeah. There were. <laughs> oh, at least in America. We don't even know what Boxing Day is, but that's a thing here now. Um, but, uh, oh, so it's like you've taken from us, have you? Yes, well, you know, I think <laughs> we borrowed from the, the Canadians. I think they just don't know that that's also a, and probably started off as a UK holiday. <laughs> or is it all of Europe? Well, it's all of, yeah, as far as I'm aware, it's, all, it's like a Europe thing. Okay, well, it's all of Europe. I didn't see now, any deals over here, though. Oh, no. I just keep seeing deals where... Uh, the game I bought at full price, Need for Speed, keeps getting cheaper Ooh, and cheaper. Yeah, 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 I see. yeah. <laughs> that's annoying. It's okay. I'll live. Um, I've gotten such good deals. It's not like I'm I'm gonna worry about it now. But anyway, uh, do we have a sponsor this week? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, the sponsor. Uh, so this sponsor this week is um, Cat and Fox, uh, the show that is on all games um, every week at 8 p.m. Wednesdays Eastern Standard Time. Yes, and they were number one last mm. week, so congratulations to them. We eked in, I believe, at number two, but don't quote me on that. I'm not going to look it up, but I think they <laughs> were number really two. Up. If we weren't, uh, I'm sorry to whomever was number two that I'm not giving credit to. <clears throat> uh, anyway, so we'll be talking about that. Now, should I reveal what the franchise is so that people are ready for next week to start 2016 yep. fresh? Or why don't... No, actually, yeah. The the franchise is going to be Mass Effect. We are going to have a special guest, if all mm-hmm. goes well. Hopefully. <laughs> and who might that guest be? The guest, the, well, the guest who would be would be B. Tendi, because she is... Um, as much as I'd like to say I do know Mass Effect, um, she is somebody that probably knows Mass Effect better than the average person um not to toot her horns but she's like she's not only she played all three of the games played all the dlcs but she's also read pretty much every expanded universe book and graphic novel Ooh, <laughs> this, so this is yeah i'm almost there <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah 
<laughs> and I, and I'm, to, I'm fully to blame for this because it was my fault for introducing her to this franchise in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we will be talking about that. Um, I know Acevedo Rufino from um, from uh, 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 Future Monkeys uh, had asked them to do it. And then uh, they were like, well, that's more of a gaming history 101 thing. And I said, oh, OK, I'll do well, a Mass Effect <laughs> But I do love Mass Effect, and if you've been paying attention, this is a triumvirate now. Last week we had um, Knights of the Old Republic. Yep. This week we'll do uh, Jade Empire. Next week will be Mass Effect. But And I'll be honest with you, Jam, I don't know if we can get to Jade Empire. I have a very tight schedule, and yep. if we want me to on the show, and I do, um, we might have to pre-record next week's show this weekend, and then we'll air it. But... Um, I'll try to be in the chat, uh, and Jam, you tend to show up for the chat and stuff like that. So Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Anyway, um, <clears throat> and speaking of the chat, you want to come join us at allgames.com every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. because you can hang out with all the lovely chatters like we have mm -hmm. tonight and um, many other people. So despite the vacations, we do have people uh, in the chat, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and we are going to be talking about a topic that was kind of started by Retronauts. I think they kind of do it each year. We get a little more thorough than them. I don't really consider ourselves even competing with them, but that's a thing. <laughs> so just being forthcoming with that. Uh, but they skipped it a couple of years and we kept it. But before we do any of that, we do have some listener mail. Yeah. And it's somebody bagging on me. <laughs> okay. And they're right to do so. All right, here we go. Silent Hill again. Nope. This comes from Andrew, man with good taste. Uh, and uh, subject is feedback no one asked for. I beg to differ. Anyway, he said, uh, as the title says, even if no one wants this, I have things to say. Welcome, sir. Say them. Mm -hmm. uh, while I never played the original Tomb Raider, I did play Anniversary, and I watched the first one on YouTube. I have things to say here. First, the original has better voice acting. Sure, Core may have hired nobodies off the street, but those nobodies sounded genuine. The actors in Anniversary tried way too hard to act, to sound like a Hollywood movie. And that's where their performance sounded like, acting. The 1996 voices were more believable, and more believably British. Second, I beat Anniversary on all difficulties, all on my own, without a guide. Fred, you need to get good. Sounds like a dream there. That's right. And the one thing regarding Star Wars, it's tangentially related, but what the heck. I've seen, uh, I saw The Phantom Menace first and loved it, as did I love Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. And no matter how many times, quote-unquote, true Star Wars fans will tell me how wrong I am or how, quote-unquote, terrible the movies are, I will never back down. I am an old-school fan and do not, I am not an old-school fan and do not aspire to be. Mm -hmm. And to make this game related, I wanted to tell you about a no uh, about a no longer canon but interesting title called Lethal Alliance. Side note for me, I've played Ooh. Lethal Alliance. Have you, yeah. Jam? I have, yeah. Okay. While it was an average third-person shooter for the PSP with touchy controls, it had two things rare in video games. It had a perfect camera that did not get stuck ever and very oh. good enemy AI. Bad guys would keep moving, back away, and take cover. It's a shame the game didn't become anything greater than what it could be and is no longer canon. However, the title did get referenced in a canon Clone Wars novel about Ventress. You know who she is. Uh, well, I wish, a good, I wish you a good 2016 better than 2015 was. 
Well, thank you very much. I have played this game. I actually played the th the DS version. The DS version, yeah. Which no, I'd probably disagree with that version being any as being. I can imagine a PSP version is far superior. You know what? The, they both did. I believe the camera rotation with shoulder buttons, which is a better way than a lot yep. of games handled camera, though. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, oh, Sparky's joined. Woohoo! Um, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so I'm going to give him credit. And for those who haven't played it, Lethal Alliance actually stars a Twi'lek uh, mm -hmm. bounty hunter, right? I believe she's a bounty hunter or a smuggler. Can't remember now. I believe large portions oh, yeah. of the story got lost on the DS port. It actually makes me want to go back and play the PSP port. Yeah, yeah. I know that was uh, the better one. I believe I might have even gotten a review copy of the DS Quite a hidden one. gem. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a good one. And I think that rounds it out because with your very well done Battlefront uh, compilation and the KOTOR one that I did, I think we've beaten that horse to death. I think so. I would say so. I mean, if we wanted to, if you really want me to get together and tell you why the Force Unleashed sucks, I guess I <laughs> No, can. we don't need to do that. But <laughs> I don't think it's necessary. You all know what I'm going to say. You all know. <laughs> Anyway. I mean, I don't, I don't mind the Force Unleashed. I think it it was clear by the second game that LucasArts was kind of almost done with Star Wars games, really. But There are uh, some that do back the original, and they have their opinion. Yeah. <laughs> but when I'm fighting fucking Vader clones... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Enough said. Uh, in a game that was literally climb the tower, drop the tower, go to another tower, climb it, fight Vader. <laughs> but uh anyway uh so yeah yeah i just wanted to mention something a bit about because you mentioned about the team Raider voice acting where i i think that's a really good comment that he made about that the original did felt raw and real um and i i, I think that's a very that's a very well placed comment there because the anniversary one in a way yeah it, it, the acting is sort of more forced because and that was kind of slightly my criticism of anniversaries i felt that they really tried to deter too much from the kind of the the style of the original game and i think certainly when that when he talks about the voice acting it kind of makes more sense the way he traces it and so i agree with that statement mm -hmm. but, but yeah. well said yeah yeah definitely um also uh yeah i i don't think he's in the chat right now but uh apologies to Cy one for not uh linking his twitter to the excellent uh uh christmas card he gave i think we all gave him his due credit after i posted mm. it and i definitely did say it in the show notes but uh sorry sorry for not linking directly to you that was a fantastic card so it oh. is it's very good and here comes melted general in the funk the funk is in the house <laughs> Woo! he says fave episode of the year well let's not dawdle let's jump right into this shit because uh the ones in the sixes goes pretty far back 1951 yes <laughs> that's yeah. where our story begins so uh jam um mm -hmm. uh, why don't we trade off with these sure. um yeah. so i might have you started off so yeah. tell us where gaming is uh, it because this is uk related no because i'll do the <laughs> second part of the same ferranti stuff yeah, i'll do the mark yeah. one you do the nimrod i do love the name nimrod too so i don't know why i'm I giving do, it I to do you too, yeah but anyway continue <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem, no problem. Uh, so the Ferranti, a UK-based electrical engineering firm, released not one, but two unique computers in this year. And the first one we're going to go on to is the Nimrod, the fantastic title. <laughs> I mean, th this is something that someone, someone should patent this and re-release this title alone for a console.
Um, so anyway, getting to the point, though, this was the first computer built entirely to play a single game, NIM. Yep. <laughs> so, so in a way, it's the first official. Well, in a way, it is the first official console. Um, so what is NIM? So NIM is a math-based strategy game um, going as far back as the 16th, 16th century, with the origins even further. Um, yeah. First... Sorry, uh, my research turned up that there is hints that a derivative version of it was played back in um, like early Chinese dynasties. Oh wow! Which is ridiculous. Yeah. But anyway. Obviously, I'll point out to obviously listeners that I've never played this game. So okay, um, here's a. I was looking into ways to describe it, and yeah. it is math based. The best way I can describe it, although this is this just kind of visualizes a a concept that's similar. It is not the way you play the game, but think of. Have you ever heard of the rock moving game Mancala? No, that doesn't help. Okay, <laughs> they're like the ones where you've got like a bunch of holes on like two rows, and oh yeah, yeah, three no, beads no, in each one. You pick it up and you kind of distribute yeah. the beads. It's somewhat similar to that. Yeah, it's called Mancala, but and it's probably got a million other names because it was yeah. probably re-released and cloned a hundred times. But anyway, that's Nim. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you Google it, there are plenty of people who will teach you how to play it. <laughs> that's handy. See, <laughs> I'm sure there's YouTube videos of that too. <laughs> So, um, so at the Festival of Britain, I didn't even, I didn't even know we had that. <laughs> so, it was only one year, that's why. I imagine, yeah, that's probably why. Yeah, which is, um, which is, this is back in the summer of 1951, which sounds like a film trailer just there. Um, back in the summer of 51. <laughs> which is a fair containing British tech science and mathematics <laughs> to show off the commercial value of computers. Um, <laughs> I know you like that. That was copied yeah. directly from a flyer. <laughs> so. After the festival, it was also shown off in Berlin, where it gained attention from politicians. So Apparently, there, there is a German museum that, to this day, has the Nimrod they, on display. They have the, the Nimrod. original Nimrod, yeah. Here lies the Nimrod. Here lies the original <laughs> Nimrod. <laughs> um, but yeah, just think about it, though. Think about like the illustrious 50s, especially like in America, where everything's like post-World War II. And I understand that World War II did take place elsewhere. But you know how like Leave it to Beaver and stuff really kind of captured that. And Fallout actually does a good job, in, especially in the recent ones, with turning that on its head. Mm. Imagine that time period having a computer that... <sighs> I don't know if you look at it, it's it's ASCII, <laughs> yeah. So at best, it's Fallout style, but it's interesting how uh, Fallout could potentially, like the the concepts behind that in that '50s era, could potentially have happened with computers like the Nimrod, and of course the next one, which is the Ferranti Mark One. Mm-hmm. This was the first commercially available general purpose computer, although the prototype, the Manchester I Mark One, Manchester, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very British. I'm sorry. It's the Manchester United Mark One. It knows uh-huh, what side uh-huh. it stands on. No, um, yes. predates <laughs> predates 1951. Uh, mm-hmm. The first official Ferranti Mark One was delivered to the University of Manchester in February 1951. Mm-hmm. Uh, this here we go. This beat the U.S. version of the first commercial computer, known as the Univac. <laughs> the Univac One. I do love that we named these. They're all like space shuttles. And I, uh, yeah. By over a month, it released on March 31st, 1951, and was used for census data. It should also be noted that the Univac 1 didn't officially get delivered until December 1952. So this is something I didn't understand in my research, and I couldn't find any anything dating back to it. I read a couple of news articles that had been microfilmed and whatnot. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't understand what the concept was with like like obviously they prototyped the man the Mark One as the Manchester Mark One in the fi- in the early fifties, like in nineteen fifty. Um, but it doesn't deliver till the official Mark One. So how do you then release? a computer but not deliver it my only guess is they're trying to figure out how to move all the goddamn equipment because those things yeah. took up like a building let's take the dying parts maybe so. it's very much so <laughs> yeah. um anyway um oh okay so real quick just for people <laughs> in the chat they're they're freaking out yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> normally we do this episode the first episode of the new year at which point uh, last year we called it on the aughts and every other year I've called it on the fives and tens since 2011, where it was an article actually. Um, I will go back and change the title of on the aughts and put in parentheses fives and tens. So if you search fives and tens on the website, you can find them, but this was supposed to be for 2016 and go back and re-listen to the episode and it will, uh, the beginning of this episode and it will explain why. Uh, anyway, so back to what we were talking about. No actual price was revealed for the Ferranti Mark One, but we know it was over one hundred thousand pound. <laughs> God damn! Wow. And in <laughs> yeah, the fifties, in the fifties, <laughs> oh, it was like a space program. That's more than houses. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. That's more than houses now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm guessing. Uh, I I could be wrong, but I can tell you in Kansas City you can find a house for a hundred thousand. It won't be the greatest house, but it'll be a house anyway. Uh, one of the oldest computer games premiered on the Ferranti Mark One in November 1951, developed by Dr. Dietrich Prinz, and it played chess. You ready for this, Jam, though? It's yeah. not exactly what you're thinking of. The program took looked over every possible solution, oh, thousands God. in every case, and on average took 15 to 20 minutes oh, to make a brilliant. move. Yeah. yeah, so people can play about lag now. Yeah. <laughs> it should also be noted that the program could not output to video or play a complete game. So the program did have moments uh, where its logic could no longer make moves and therefore it could not complete a game. It had no checkmate status. It had no check status. And it didn't output to video, which leads me to believe it printed out onto paper. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's something I really want to kind of push home. I think that might have been the case with NIM as well. I don't believe these computers actually had video output. Mm. So these are ancient computers, guys. (laughs) So anyway. I think of chess on a computer, my mind just goes to the, the film The Thing, John Carpenter's version, yes. with, the, with that infamous scene. Yes, there. and he pours fucking J and B into the uh, into the the computer, and I said, Jesus, in 82, that was like a $2,000 computer. What was he working on there? Like a like an early IBM or something, I, or an Apple One. I was like, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, <laughs> blew my mind. Anyway. But this computer is far bigger than that one. <laughs> Yes, this computer, uh, if you look it up, um, again, look up the Ferranti Mark One. There's more about that than the Nimrod. I think it was because the Nimrod, really, there wasn't much to show off. Um, you can see the specs, but I believe it took up a 10 by 12 room. Mm-hmm. Like, it lined the walls of a 10 by 12 room, and I bet they had to have special ventilation to keep it cool in there. It's kind of like a server farm now. So, anyway. <clears throat> Voss is like it couldn't even finish a game. Ah, oh, so bad. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like um, it's like a modern multiplayer release today. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're in the queue for the next year. Um, so. All right. <laughs> 
Um, moving on, Jim, are we, uh, we're done with 51. So I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's go on to 1956. On that very British note, let's go into something a little bit more American now. So yes. well, kind of anyway. So 1956, uh, a little company called Nintendo's. Um, At the point they, they were a little company. Yeah, absolutely. I say absolutely. Uh, their president, Hiroshi Yamauchi, uh, visited the U.S. to speak with the United States playing card company, um, top U.S. playing card manufacturer, after bursts of success with the Hanafuda cards in Japan since 1953. Did I say that right, Hanafuda? Yes, Hanafuda is correct. <laughs> yeah. I, I should point out, they were making Hanafuda cards since the 1800s. If you go listen to my Hiroshi Yamauchi episode about this gentleman, um, it talks about that. Uh, but they started making like the plastic laminated as we know of today yeah. as playing cards in 53 in Japan and it worked out really well for them so Nintendo's hoping to come over and potentially challenge this company to business mm. is why he dropped by so yeah fair enough. or make a deal with them I think Yamauchi's style would suggest he was probably there telling them he wanted to team up with them mm-hmm. and he was probably there to fuck them over I mean, to be honest <laughs> with you that's yeah. that's how he did business so yep <laughs> so uh, so anyway, what he noted um, that the office of the USPCC um, was small which and is allowed the US playing card yeah, yeah, which yeah. well, yeah, absolutely uh, was small and allowed him to see the limits of his business. Um, it was the same year that Nintendo embarked on ventures into toy creation. Um, this did not initially, obviously, work out for the company, though. No, it should be noted that Nintendo nearly bankrupts itself by becoming a toy manufacturer. Um, yeah. <laughs> and barely pulls themselves out of it in the late 70s with arcade machines. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Way um, before the days of the consoles. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, we got Derek H. in the house. What up, <laughs> Derek H.? Anyway. Um, next up, uh, Arthur Samuel. He's an American pioneer in the world of artificial intelligence, or AI. Showed off his first checkers playing application oh, that output to television this year, so you could see oh, it work. Uh, no mention as no to how long out. it took to make a, a move, but I'm guessing since the C64 version of Chess Master was five minutes and this other one was 20 minutes, somewhere in between. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So, um, his original program released in 1952 on the IBM 701, but it didn't right. visualize itself until this year. So 1956 is when we start to see first visualization of, I don't even know if you would call it a video game, but definitely AI, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was trying to do some research. I don't know if the game played checkers with itself or against you. Mm. That was not clear. (laughs) There are some sources (laughs) online that are reputable that seem to dispute that Arthur Samuel released anything that year. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and Derek, I do love this joke. And look at them now. Toys are pushing the profits. Yeah, the Amiibo, right? Uh, Also, Sparky Kestrel and uh, various others in the show. We've kind of talked about this. Um, we're not really going to delve into the other years, although we may mention random things. Uh, and this gets a little muddy when we start dealing with UK versus US versus Japanese release dates on games. It's kind of an excuse to talk about anything. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, Jam, I was thinking about sticking to US and UK release dates in terms of these games just for the interest. So for those of you yeah, running yeah, out yeah, to Wikipedia... Sense, yeah. Be sure to check your worldwide release dates. <laughs> so I know, I know we've got people that might want to talk about, was it 16th anniversary of Shenmue from Japan's release or something? <laughs> right, Shenmue came out in 1999 <laughs> in Japan, so it's getting on, yeah, uh, or something like that. But either way, um, 
yeah so we are going to go with american releases or uk releases sorry uh but we will equally go with those since we each represent those anyway all right jim my knowledge that's it for 56 yeah yeah Quick, quick years, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> slow, slow years in um, in this industry, but um, but anyway, but, but nineteen sixty one now. So we're moving moving forward. Um, Steve Russell, a student at MIT, playing around on the university's DEC PDP what dash one. Yes. Is, that, is that how you pronounce that? Sort of and if you, yes, it? and I, I need to point out real quick uh, that I did the uh, the. Let's see which one I've done. I've done on the. I believe in 2011, I did, you know, at 2012, we, we established GH101 in 2011. So in 2012, I think I did the twos and the sevens and I was starved for content. And so some people believe that, yeah, the PDP one and space war might have premiered in 62. So I think I played that game. The reason I bring all this up is if you go read the article, it Mm -hmm. explains in pretty good depth what the PDP one is exactly. So Mm -hmm. anyway, but anyway, um, yeah, so you've, yeah, you, as you mentioned just then, Fred, so he creates this little game that is pretty infamous for people, that, for, for arcades, really. Um, it's, it's the first true video game, which is Space War! Exclamation mark. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so, yes, it's Space uh, War! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so or you know what? Actually, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to ride yeah, this yeah. a little farther. You ever seen Starship Troopers? Yes. Of course. Space war. I think it should be said <laughs> like that, like that uh, that classic like infomercial type of uh, here's the propaganda from your country's government telling you what's going on. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so what was even more interesting was that the PDP-1 was capable of several peripherals, one of which was the makeshift gamepad for playing the game, um, which was a line of switches, not, not it, was, it was a line of switches rather than an actual real gamepad. But you know, people hey. that have seen the arcade cabinet will be familiar. Oh, well, no, you're thinking of computer space. Space War was not in a... Oh, yes, but I guess the switches are pretty similar. Mm. Um, I should point out the switches... In my research, the switches broke very often, which was oh, why yeah. they made it a peripheral, <laughs> so they could keep swapping them out as they broke. Mm-hmm. So... Derek says Space War was the minesweeper of its time. So. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> I mean, in, in hundreds of thousands of dollar college classrooms, sure. <laughs> but when you're, when you're the only game around, I guess you don't have much competition. So. Right. So. But, but again, some people would argue that about minesweeper in certain countries as well. <laughs> That's incredibly yeah. true, right? But anyway, um, so what what is Space War? Space War is it's a vector-based uh, graphical title um, and ASC uh, one. ASCII. ASCII. Are you familiar with what ASCII is? No. <laughs> it's like using letters and characters on the keyboard to make a, an image. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm sure I, you I, saw them in like chat rooms yeah. and on Twitter and stuff where they, yeah, that's ASCII. So. Um, yes, yeah, so they use they use ASCII is used to make is used for objects. Um, uh, the game puts two ships, uh, the needle and the wedge, and in the gravity well of the star, and trying to shoot each other down. Um, it, missiles are unaffected by gravity due to the lack of processing power. Um, ships have to dodge missiles and the star and the star itself. A last-ditch hyperspace option transports the ship to a random spot on the map, but this may vary. This varies. Uh, this can vary in benefit due to both the placement and the chance that the ship can be destroyed in the process. <laughs> yeah, so I guess if you hit hyperspace, there's like yeah. a shot that it just blows you up or puts you in a real dick location, like in the heart of the star's gravitational pull. <laughs> 
I always used to wonder what were the point of the hyperspace bomb because they obviously put it in games like Defender as well, um, and I, that would also you know, put you into instant death sort of situations. <laughs> yeah, that's you know what sometimes, as Han Solo puts it in the new Star Wars movie, <gasps> uh, it can be scary just uh, you know launching into hyperspace out of yeah. nowhere. <laughs> but anyway. So students would continue to refine and port the game all over various computers in the 1960s. Uh, from a British span's point, uh, the deck would demo DEC the game. DEC is the developer oh, of the PDP. I'm terrible. These yeah, yeah. Um, would demo the game because it demonstrated the company's power of the system and utilized all of the limits. With a hefty $120,000 price tag, only 55 <laughs> units were ever sold and limited mostly to Lermy. You just said Fred in university, so... That's true. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, well, and uh, and I should point out that the visuals are like a four-inch vector screen. Mm. I've <laughs> um, never seen one of these in the UK. So. Oh, yeah. Probably never came to your mm. world. And by the way, for those wondering like about the, the, uh, the acronyms, if Jam doesn't know it, there's no way he would know because we bounce back and forth on him. It's PDP, then ASCII, so it's not ASCII, and then DEC, so he's screwed anyway. He dices it. <laughs> so, sorry, man. Sorry That's for right. all those uh, acronyms <laughs> on you. I love it. Not experience. <laughs> all right. And there is definitely a lot of talk of space war and um, computer space. Computer space will be coming up very shortly. But in between... We're going to jump over to 1966 and talk about a little gentleman by the name of Ralph Bayer, who many mm -hmm. consider to be the father of the modern video game. Uh, God rest his soul. He passed away at the age of yep. 92 recently. And when I say recently, I mean within the past. It was either year or two. I'm sorry. I didn't look it up. Um, and it is in 1966 that he claims he comes up with the idea of creating commercial video games for play on television. Now, the mm -hmm. reason I say... It, you know, like allegedly or whatnot, there is definitely proof he did this in 1966. And I'll talk about that in a sec. Yeah. We just don't know that anybody else wasn't doing it. And he doesn't file for the patent right away, which, which is, is interesting. weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it may be, as I'll get to in the end here, the wide scope at which he took towards what he thought he was covered on. So anyway, uh, according to Bear, he first came up with the idea while working on broadcast equipment at Laurel, which was an engineering company, back in 1951. Basically, back then, uh, Ralph Bear was one of the earliest guys who was dealing with, uh, you got all these fun newfangled TVs, what do you display on them? Yeah. Um, it wasn't until 1966, as manager of the Equipment Design Division at Sanders Associates, Inc., that he looked at the 40 million plus TV sets uh, sold domestically and wanted a new way to interact with them. He recalls that in August of 1966 at a New York City business trip, he jotted down the idea of a game displayed on a TV at a bus terminal. Then on September 1st, 1966, he returns from the business trip and writes up a four page design document for creating the game that could be played on a TV. Something quite common for Bear, he wanted to patent board games, sports games, action games, quote-unquote chase games, in addition to several <laughs> other game types, as his whole consensus for the patent. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I don't believe he got a patent at this time, no. Bear is famous for providing these... Th famous for providing these documents to argue that he was the inventor and deserves credit in parentheses or at least money for each game created in this type across history so here's where i'm going to take a side step real quick and say yeah bear does have those documents you can go online wow. and see them and they are dated yes you seem a little far off mr jam mm -hmm. oh is that better there you go okay yeah, yeah. um 
the the problem is is that uh it's a very basic idea i guess i would say Mm-hmm. Um, but his design document does show you how you do it, which probably puts him a step ahead of most. The last part was Bear felt that he basically needed to be compensated. Even at his, even in his 90s, he was talking about how he should be compensated for every video game that has ever released. Wow. He basically wanted to go out to every developer and say, you're welcome, guys who make console games. Everybody pony up a dollar for every, you know, or something to that effect. Yeah. You know, a dollar for every game you've ever sold. Um <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, he was kind of a – he's a great man, brilliant, but kind of a mean old bastard in that regard, yeah. I've heard. Uh, and actually, mean old bastard's not fair. That's Hiroshi Yamauchi. I would say, <laughs> while he's a pember- pivotal member of the gaming world, Bear was a bit stubborn when it came to sharing. <laughs> That's the yeah. best way I'll put it. Um, it should also be noted that Bear would later invent the brown box, which would eventually release as the Magna- Magnavox Odyssey in 1972, the first video game console sold commercially. Mm. And I will throw it out there. There's a fun little historical series I do on all console games that were released domestically in the U.S. called uh, Shit. I think it was just called The History of Console Games. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's a six-parter. You can look it up. I have the Odyssey in there as well as everything else that released. So. Mm. Anyway. So all right, Derek, Derek's mentioning in the chat about uh, how bitter Bear was. I mean, I, from what I've read as well, I mean, Bear wasn't big on video games himself, really. He was... I mean, he was yeah. just a really smart, smart yeah, engineer, yeah. and he could just he could make things like people don't realize. Um, you know, I, when I talk to old developers, and it's not very often. And unfortunately, I haven't done a whole lot of good jobs with interviews, which I'm hoping to change in 2016. But when I talk to old developers at like the retro gaming conferences and stuff, they talk to you about the difficulty of machine language, but the fact that it was the only way to achieve 60 hertz. Now take that a step farther, where you're bare, you have to figure out how to get an image from a computer to display on a basic television and then make it do something. And he did that. And he Mm -hmm. really was the first person to do that. Mm -hmm. He made what is essentially the first pong game, uh, which was the Magnavox Odyssey. So yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so Derek H says he created Simon too. Simon. Huh? Mm. There you go. I didn't know. I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Jam, let's head back to uh, Space War. <laughs> Space War. <laughs> nice to meet you. Yeah, I remember. Um, we, we, we referred to 1971. So, yes. So the world's first um, commercial arcade game, Computer Space, releases in November of 1971. Um, this, was, this was released by Nutting Associates after the firm hired Nolan Bushnell to create a commercially, commercial version of Space War. <laughs> sorry, oh, sorry, sorry, but um, um, Starship Troopers first, Space War. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, Bushnell um, brought Ted uh, Dabney on board to help him create the game, and the two would eventually go on to found Atari Inc. Um, Computer Space predates the Odyssey by six months and Pong by a year. Um, and Bushnell then also used a series of four thrusters to control the game, along with a fire button, and the player would compete against the computer-controlled flying saucer. If the player went six, not, sorry, 90 minutes, uh, seconds, 90, minutes seconds. 90 seconds, sorry, <laughs> 90 seconds, uh, and was winning, the game would swap to a negative view of the play field and continue for 90 more seconds. Uh, this sequence repeated until the saucer wins. Yes. Nice. <laughs> not the first Which troll, means it's so. technically <laughs> possible to play space war forever but or computer space forever although i doubt anyone did it <laughs> could they handle that's like torture oh i know 
So that's why Carpal Tunnel started. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Computer Space was the first commercially available video game. Uh, that while it proved to be popular at educational institutes, it proved to be the opposite in bars. Uh, people cited it was too complicated and hard to and. Uh, had had a too steep a learning curve for the general public. Even Bushnell admits that he only saw uh, the draw to the game with engineers and other scientific types. Roughly 1,500 units sold, and it was considered a commercial failure for the most part. Yeah. Now, have you ever seen this cabinet, Jim? Uh, yeah, I've seen the cabinet for this one, yeah. Yeah, Other people play. haven't seen yeah. it. Uh, if you... Uh, Soylent Green, the movie, 1983, <laughs> has a white yeah. computer space in the uh, that main, you know, head honcho's office. Um, and Jaws, believe it or not, has an original computer space oh, on the it? Boardwalk Arcade. Yeah, there's a scene where you kind of oh. see Amity Island, right, when everybody returns to the beaches. And there's even a shark attack game that some kid's playing on a, on a hologram. Mm. And uh, next to it is a computer space uh, thing. It, but. it came in different colors, didn't it, this cabinet as well, like blues. Yes. Uh, the original one was like midnight blue or something, and I believe yeah. that's the color John's got. Oh, really? oh yeah, John yeah, of that. Arcade Outsiders and John's Arcade fame. Oh, I'm yeah, that, not yeah. aware of any other shows he may do, mm. um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, 1971 was a banner year, though. We've got a lot more to talk about. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, have you ever played Computer Space? By the way, I've not played it though. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Again, I haven't seen one over here in the UK. It's fucking. I think there is one over here, though. I, I remember it because I think in one of the conventions I went to, somebody was showing off about it. So well, and hardware nuts like me will yeah. love the fact that it's three PCB boards working in tandem uh, with a basic monitor, basically a vector-based monitor, and um, there's no RAM, ROM, or processor at all. Mm. So it's wow. Interesting. It was, yeah, it's very much the cardboard box with the TV and the N Super Nintendo inside, you know, in a full-size <laughs> arcade, you know? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, next up, Star Trek The Text Game was also created in 1971 Fantastic. by Mike Mayfield along with some high school friends. Now, I should point out this is not a text adventure. I'll explain what no, it no, really no. is. Yeah. Uh, the game was originally programmed on an SDS Sigma 7 computer yeah. that he used at the University of California, Irvine, thanks to a <laughs> stolen account. My guess is he somehow got oh, yeah. into the computer lab. Um, the game featured the Enterprise, uh, which is represented by an E, um, mm -hmm. in an 8 by 8 quadrant grid fighting Klingons. Uh, it should, it, if you're not a Star, War, Star Trek nut, um, the TV show had recently gone off the air. I think it went out. 1970 early? Oh, forget how old that original series is that, that's yeah. crazy yeah. So, yeah. so anyway um the enterprise can attack with photon torpedoes or phasers now here's the interesting thing torpedoes killed in one hit but needed precise coordinates well mm -hmm. the phasers didn't target but did less damage based on distance so basically the phasers would always hit yeah but if you were far enough away it didn't really matter uh, the Klingon ships would fire and then move each turn, making targeting a pain and often requiring a calculator. Oh, God. oh wow. <laughs> yes, <laughs> old school. Upon destroying a ship, the Enterprise can visit a star base to be repaired and also restock, restock and refuel. Mm -hmm. These are all factors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> After clearing out the quadrant, the Enterprise can warp to a new quadrant within an additional 8 by 8 layer of sectors. So if you're doing the math, there are mm -hmm. 64 boxes on a main screen, and there were 64 sectors in a game. So you had to clear out 64 whole sectors to beat the game. This made the map quite large. <laughs> 
Um, Take that, Skyrim. The, yeah, right. The game ends. <laughs> with, right. Fuck you, Daggerfall. What do you got? Uh, no. Um, the game ends when the Klingons are defeated, the Enterprise is defeated, or time expires. Each move equated oh, wow. to. Yeah. It, well, well, but hold on. Each move equates to a certain amount of time. It didn't take actual. Oh, okay. Time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, real time. Yeah. Oh, and Sparky Kestrel points out John's is yellow, so I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, and Clue Drew has joined us. Welcome, Clue Drew. Uh, so anyway, um, Mayfield would have uh, would then be often asking questions at a Hewlett Packard sales office regarding his recent purchase of the HP thirty five calculator. Now, mm-hmm. just imagine this for a second, though. He was eighteen at the time, so he probably wow, bought this yeah. new fancy calculator, and it probably did scientific functions and whatnot. Yeah, you know, especially be at Hewlett Packard, and. He was probably bugging those sales clerks all the time. Like, how do you make it do complex functions and stuff like that? I don't think he was programming anything. Mm. But eventually he mentions to them that he made the Star Trek game. And they tell him that they would offer him their HP 2000C, which was a version of BASIC called Timeshared BASIC. Mm-hmm. They would give him their, their computer, like a, one of their computers, if he would port the game from Sigma 7 to Timeshared BASIC on the 2000C. He did, and eventually the game was part of a bunch of compilations thanks to it being ported to the DEC BASIC Plus programming language and then distributed in the newsletter. The game became widely known and found on countless collections, and it would eventually see true success in 1974 when it was converted to Microsoft BASIC ah, as yeah. Super Star Trek. Mm-hmm the most widely uh, sold and played versions to my knowledge though i don't think mayfield was involved beyond his port to the 2000c so once it left the 2000c um i think somebody else comes in and really makes the money off that Mm. (laughs) to be honest with you um anyway uh so this is like the best selling star trek game ever right (laughs) i'm joking but maybe (laughs) So. This is like the only Star Trek game I've heard getting really good review. <laughs> <laughs> really? For some reason, you Brits all love the 360 one. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway. There's another big game, though. It's another big game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so, Derek H. says he's played that Star Trek, so there you oh, go. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, the sequel. Uh, yeah, probably Super Star Trek, mm-hmm. yeah. But it's a pretty good game, he says. <laughs> it looks pretty interesting. You can see it. Uh, there's a lot of animated gifs of people playing. Mm-hmm. But anyway. So the other big game that um, premiered in 1971 was a little game called Organ Trail. Um, so we're going to go to Carlton College, Northfield, um, MN, which, which states that. Minnesota, sorry. So, that's all right. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. I would not know any of your descriptors either. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. So. <laughs> so, so senior Don uh, Rorich. I, oh, God. Rorich Singe. Oh, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> I'll help you. I'll help you. Sounds like sounds German. Oh, yes. <laughs> senior Don uh, Rawich. Yeah, oh, I'm bad those created a game along with peers. I'll just knock these out for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bill Heineman and Paul Dillenberger. Those are some American ass <laughs> names. I know, yeah. With some German ass uh, originations, I bet. But anyway, um, so yeah, those guys. They so they went. To, they they teach. They taught in the eighth grade history class, which was like <laughs> which was like to ride the organ the organ trail by a covered wagon in 1848. <laughs> Um, That's right. <laughs> and I love this. The game was programmed uh, in Timeshared Basic on the HP 
to, uh, I call it, I say 2100, but I'm guessing that's it's fine. like 2100. You can say 2100, yeah. that's fine. Um, and uh, was reeled to the class in December of 1971. Despite it being bug-ridden, see, guys, they did have bugs back then as well. Yeah, so it, was, it was the Skyrim of its time. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Running joke, I like it. So, but, um, the game was vastly popular, and it took off in popularity around school. Uh, and then it, was later, it, it would later get picked up by the Minnesota Educational Computer Consortium, the MECC, in 1974, with, God damn it, in charge of the educational crossware software, software. The game would become a massive success. And by 1995, which is quite a way ahead in the future, yeah. um, they the, would account for $10 million, which is a third of MECC's annual revenue. That's to this huge. day, MECC yeah. stays afloat. And you know what? Oregon Trail is a very widely pirated and copied yeah. game where they don't get paid for it. I also was very happy to see that Rawwitch is involved uh, with this from the get. So he continues to make royalties when MECC does. Um, and they're kind of the start of like educational software. Mm. It's actually a really cool story that branches even deeper with this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as I'd like to tell it, when somebody does it, just as good or better than you can you may as well give credit where credit's due um watch out for fireballs did it look for their edutainment episode they go pretty in depth like a 30 minute story on oregon trail uh jam have you ever played oregon trail i think i have i've played it on pc before and okay. I, I i hate to admit it but it was probably pirated and it's just it's for, so, but... it's okay you probably died of dysentery at some point in the game so yes i did yeah <laughs> but that's an inside I, joke for those that have played it. <laughs> I remember playing. I think I think I played on like a Windows um, 3.1 computer like ages ago. You know, makes sense. Not mm. to be mistaken for Oregon Trail, a very no, popular no, no, no. indie game right now. Uh, Oregon yeah, yeah, Trail can be found, I believe, for free on the web now. Mm. So. Yeah, when you when you mentioned the piracy thing, I said, yeah, yeah, that sounds very familiar. I'm sure <laughs> your cell phones have a bunch of really bad adware ridden. Um, <clears throat> versions of the game right now on any (laughs) ios or google play store that you can find but anyway moving on to 1976 we're gonna open with an interesting little story Mm -hmm. uh, about william crowther an experienced caver and developer of colossal cave (laughs) he collaborates with don woods a stanford graduate student to create colossal cave adventure um, originally, Colossal Cave was a Fortran developed. Fortran's a fucking brutal uh, language for one, as somebody who has jacked around with it. Secondarily, we need to point out it's not very effective. So Fortran would only work in this type of game, which I'll just come out right away and say is kind of a text-based adventure. Anyway, mm-hmm. it was a Fortran developed game with 66 rooms, 12 navigational message, and fantasy enemies such as dwarves based mm-hmm. on... And, and it was all based on the actual Mammoth Cave, which is located in Kentucky in the United States. Oh, wow. Um, an experienced caver, Crowther created the game to show off the cave, uh, the cave to his daughters, like the best oh. way to show, show it off without taking them there. Um, because caving is actually, uh, I don't know if you cave at all, Jam. I don't, but I know some uh, people who do. Yeah. It's dangerous. It's really dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you usually tell people where you are. I'm sure it gets a little better with GPS now, but if the descent is to be believed, you can still get fucked pretty quick. So. you talk about that horror film yes oh, yes <laughs> yeah, that's great um, anyway go watch the descent guys it'll be good for you don't watch um, the second one though <laughs> you'll never cave again uh but yeah don't watch the sequel it tries to tie up loose ends and that's always bad 
Mm. Anyway, when Woods got involved, when Woods, this is the Stanford student, uh, yeah. got involved uh, in the game, they developed one of the earliest versions of text adventures. Uh, fun fact, Crowther worked for Bolt, Baranek, and Newman on ArapaNet, which was an early TCP IP forerunner to the internet. So this guy basically helped build the internet. <laughs> so he's a little, he's kind of How a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, fuck it. <laughs> 76, there you go. <laughs> so <clears throat> so then now so the next so the next uh story 1976 so we go back to our the our good old buddy nolan bushnell here and steve bristow now as they decide to come up with an atari single player version of pong which eventually led to the creation of breakouts Woo! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so some people might know that i again. love breakout <laughs> I, I i adore breakout <laughs> so i've got um i got one of those like little they, you know like those old lcd like digital games oh yeah. Yeah. yeah like the watch games that's yeah. it yeah absolutely it works brilliantly or the tiger electric ones or whatever yeah yeah it's kind of like that but i think it works a bit more fluidly than those tiger ones oh, that's good. <laughs> but, um, anyway the the idea was to put the blocks at the top of the screen so the player could, com- uh, could compete in a way with the layout in the version of pong so you know basically obviously pong is horizontal and breakouts vertical basically so um so um, prototyping was given to then designers Steve was Wozniak. Wozniak. Yeah, I can say that probably. Yeah, yeah. No, you're good. <laughs> yeah, and Steve Jobs. Um, these two would then go on to create the Apple One the same year. The story that isn't fully substantial. Okay, actually, if you don't mind, do you mind me telling this story just because I know Wish it? I, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah so okay, so here's the fun story because uh, oh, Clue Drew says ARPANET. Sorry. Oh. Um, I thought it was a rapanet. Here, I'll I'll spell it. Arpanet. Yeah, you guys are right. A R P A N E T. Arpanet. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and Arpanet was established in 1969. You know, uh, I didn't know that. I I actually just said fun fact that he was working on it at that time. So mm. anyway. Um, all right. So here's the story regarding breakout and kind of how Nolan Bushnell handed Steve Wozniak and uh, Steve Jobs. Um. Uh, and, and handled like a bonus situation. And this story has never been substantiated. So um, Nolan Bushnell apparently promised a bonus to the duo if they could create a game using the fewest chips chips yep. due to hardware costs. ROM chips were expensive. And um, apparently Waz worked with Jobs for four days straight while still doing eight-hour shifts at HP, <sighs> whereas Jobs had no other work. So basically Jobs went home and Waz went to work. Wow. And eventually <laughs> the design was pushed out in a breadboard with only 44 chips. For reference, normally Atari arcade games came in at about 150 to 170 chips. So this version would literally have less than a third of the chip cost. The rumored part is that Bushnell gave Jobs the $5,000 bonus check they were offered, and he in turn only gave Wozniak 350 bucks, claiming it was his half of the $700 bonus they got for the work. <sighs> <laughs> both ended poorly as the story was never substantiated and atari couldn't use the design because the pcb board was difficult to manufacture based off of the odd chip placements atari would eventually redesign um a different pcb board that made, was made up of 100 uh chips the original game was black and white with colored strips on the bezel to emulate colors in the game hmm. there you go pretty cool <laughs> that's the that's the fun little one but anyway um all right. Well, Jam, why don't you uh, go on with the next one? Uh-huh. 
But it's like when we when we need him, <laughs> so because this is his, this is one he'll like. This is uh, his so, jam. <laughs> yeah, literally. literally. <laughs> but so in April uh, on um, April twentieth, nineteen seventy six, Data East was founded in Tokyo, Japan. Um, yeah, we've obviously obviously people may know that we have done a Data East episode already uh, called Data Easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but this company was best known for excellent licensed software, some key games in history, and of course, a bunch of fantastic pinball, including Fred's favorite, Guns N' Roses. <laughs> so. Yeah, so I'm just looking over their list real quick. We won't mm-hmm. go deep into it, but uh, they were, of course, responsible, and we've talked about it on a different episode, for the, um, oh, the Fantastic Night Slashers. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, of course, uh, oh, they've done they've done a bunch of stuff. But you know, battle. Uh, wait, uh, uh, bad dudes versus dragon ninja and two yeah. dudes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, they never did make tattoo assassins, but that was a fun little Mortal Kombat clone that was canceled. Uh, that you can get on Mame and play right now. It's completely it's completed. Is that um, the, the new Dallasy one? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> and then their pinball is what we didn't really talk about too much. <laughs> But they, yeah, they have tons of pinball games I love. Uh, Jam, I don't know if you saw looking on this, but they did the they did one of the daunting tasks, which was the Who's Tommy uh, pinball wizard table. Mm-hmm. They're responsible for that one. They did the Simpsons, which was okay. Yeah. They did Last Action Hero, which hands Ooh. down better than the movie. Because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Jurassic Park table, which the only thing I hold against it is that the uh, T Rex looks like a brachiosaur. <laughs> um, Guns and Roses, of course, and they did do the Back to the Future pinball. Okay, so yeah, they've done a lot others though, mm-hmm. but fantastic company. Absolutely, fantastic company. Anyway, um, StarTech says hi. Yeah, that's true. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> they're talking about cell phones now. <laughs> Come join the chat. Anyway, uh, next up in 1976, Ted Michon develops or Michon, I don't know, M I C H O N. If you're looking him up, mm-hmm. uh, develops and releases Atari's arcade title Night Driver, which is notable for several things. It is one of the earliest first-person racing games. This cabinet contained a shifter, a steering wheel, and a gas pedal, and is played in 90 to 300 second intervals, depending on. It basically has a lot of turns, and you got to keep up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, as many may recall, the car is not actually present on the screen. Instead, a decal is placed at the bottom of the inside bezel to show off the car itself. Uh, the game is also believed to be the first game to have real-time render of first-person graphics, although the sources are sketchy. Everybody was pretty sure. They're like, I believe this is the case, and no one's ever challenged me on it, but I could be wrong. So mm-hmm. that's where we'll leave it. And that was several sources. Um, anyway, uh, the game gave way to countless ports, had a cocktail and upright cabinet, and is still found on 360's Game Room. That's interesting. As yeah. well as a digital PC port. Yeah, it's one of the few games wow. that was on Game Room. So <laughs> there you go. Is that still going, the 360 Game Room thing? Uh, it's not still going, but it is still available. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. But, uh... Go on. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so now we're going to get into where gaming especially arcade and console gaming mm-hmm. and pc gaming all starts to converge and now it's less about developments in technology and more about the games themselves and whatnot and these Absolutely. are all jam on purpose in no particular order mm-hmm. so so should we get started with the where the first off the list which um, scramble is released by konami to the arcades 
Yes, it is. Now, Jam, have you ever played Scramble? I haven't played this one, no. Okay. Do you know what it is? I think I've got an idea about it. It's, uh, hold on. Just remind me. <laughs> sure. Uh, many people think it that it predates um, uh, Gradius, which it does in in, in uh, time. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. No, I'll but yeah, it's, <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, it's, a, it's basically a side-scrolling shooter. Like Defender sort of thing. To a certain extent, yes. But it also has the vertical bombs, the mm. missiles, as were made very popular in Gradius. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's definitely you know notable. It's it's a it's a Zilog twin Z eighty machine. Mm-hmm. So there's that, um, and it can be found all over the place, including uh, what will be a, a commonality in today's uh, episode. Uh, you can get it in game room, and uh, I believe it is available in a lot of the Japanese Gradius collections. I don't believe it's on the Gradius collection on PSP. But I believe the early PlayStation 1 and Saturn ones, yes. So, anyway. And mm-hmm. Derek H. says Gradius is the sequel for Scramble. Yeah, I, I thought so. Yeah, um, which goes ties in. <laughs> yeah, and you can see that if you play the game. Um, mm-hmm. It's an okay game. I, I didn't enjoy it too much, but yeah. Anyway. Um, all right. Well, then I guess I'll take up the next one. Mm-hmm. Next one, uh, which I think you'll probably talk about more, <laughs> yeah. is... Uh, Developed by uh, designer Eugene Jarvis from mm-hmm. Williams Electronics is Defender. Defender. The first, yeah. uh, I believe it was the first scrolling. Wow, really? First scrolling one. Video game. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it mm. wasn't. But uh, it was definitely ridiculously uh, successful. But. Mm. So, Jam, do you do you like Defender? Uh, yeah, I, do. I like Defender a lot. This game is very enjoyable. I think. talk a little um, bit about Defender then. Yeah, yeah. December is a D- December. <laughs> Defender is a December is a great month too. <laughs> it should not be uh, put aside either. So Defender is a is a horizontal scrolling uh, space shooter. But really, what the goal really is is that you have those kind of little space invader aliens are coming down. They're picking up like little people from the bottom of the planet's surface and the idea is for you to shoot the aliens well ideally before they even pick up the people but if they do then what you have to do is you have to kind of like go and collect the people and then land them safely on the floor and if you don't they fall and explode in a lovely pixelated mess which is quite satisfying actually this game's fucking tough i'm just gonna come out and say it, it is very tough and you can also be a dick and shoot the people at the bottom as well if you want but so yes fair. you can yeah <laughs> but it infinitely scrolled right yeah, it is. It, well, it loops. Like it's it repeated, loop- basically. Yeah. It's looping. It looped, yeah. And I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but it had a hyperspace button, which always screwed you over. But it's only supposed to be used as a last resort anyway. But, um, yeah, so you were dying anyway. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but a t- very, very addictive, though. Just very fun. And I there's that game that's on um, that was on PlayStation 4 that was released. It's considered its spiritual successor. Yeah, and I had it in my mind right (laughs) now and suddenly fucking blanked on it. Hold on. Maybe people in the chat will jump in and tell us what that was. Oh, my God. Okay, but oh why, why are you doing that though? Why are you figuring it out? Um, but basically, I, I really, really enjoyed Defender. I actually first played it on the uh, Williams collection on the Mega Drive of all things. There so, you go. Um, 
which uh, was compiled with. Which also has Eugene Jarvis's Robotron 2084. Yeah, yeah no, another great game. And the, the compilation itself um, it was also released on Super Nintendo. It had Defender, Defender 2, um, Sinistar, uh, Robotron, and I, I think. Rezogun. There it was. Yeah, Rezogun. That's the one. It's on mm. the Vita. doesn't perform great on the Vita. Thank you very much, Foss. Um, but it was on. Uh, um, great on the PS4. Yeah, it was on PS4 first anyway. I think, yeah, the Vita is obviously not the oh, best. Oh, Sparky Kestrel's calling you out. He says, wasn't Hyperspace only in Defender 2? I I could be wrong. I could have sworn it was in the first one as well. But um, again, you know, I might, I might be wrong there. So. And Derek says, fuck that. The spiritual successor is Defender 2K on the Jaguar. Yeah, I got that. <laughs> okay, yeah, and then yeah. wasn't Defender 3K on the fucking new one, Derek? Yeah, that's that's some deep cuts right there. Yeah, it might have only been... They may have... Nuon may have only done Tempest 3000. But I thought Defender 3K was also on the Nuon. I'm going to have to look that up now. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very fun game. And I I, I did kind of like the simplicity. Because I guess, I guess some people would argue that these graphics kind of were pseudo vectory as well. Because they were quite straightforward. It was mostly lines, really. You know, the, the aliens had a good solid green color. Some of the, spit, the spaceship was white. But the actual sort of, you know, the... Actually, the they were raster graphics, just so you know. Yeah, they, yeah. They that that makes complete sense. But yeah. like, the, the mountain ranges were just little, like, like neon lines, basically. So mm. very, very product of the 80s, really. Yeah, well, they yeah. They, they didn't want to... Uh, um, they didn't want to... Uh, you know, probably pay for vector graphics since they didn't really need to anymore, unless it was a design choice. So, but definitely, my I did, and I did. I have actually played this on the arcade, on the arcade cabinet as well, which is and it is it's a great game. I really enjoy it. Yeah, it doesn't have a joystick, does it? Isn't it just buttons? Yeah, it's buttons. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, but then again, but you know, since people, everyone has main cabinets now, you know, they probably <laughs> use a joystick with it too. So. I mean, you can if that's what you want to do, really. But <laughs> all right, Jim, you might want to take this next one as well. Uh oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, Ultima, um, Ultima. No, one. no, no, no. You're oh? one off. Oh, 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 um, Sinclair Research. Oh, sorry. Oh, I do apologize. Yeah, I was, I was, I was looking at the highlighted blue stuff. So yeah, okay. So yeah, this is a very big one. Uh, Sinclair Research and Time um, Timex Corp released uh, a little console known as the ZX81 in the UK, which was yeah. a big deal. Not to be confused with the um, ZX Spectrum. They um, right. that was released later. <laughs> the um, yes, these are like the precursors of the Spectrum, aren't they? They are. Yeah, the ZX81. I mean, people in, certainly in the UK, I wouldn't say everybody is aware of this console because there's some people are still. It, this was basically a very black and white console, uh, but it was very much loved for people that did have it. Um, there, there was games were released for this console, and um, a little bit of a shout out to a great game called Life of Pixel that both uh, me and Fred have played and is on. Mm. Uh, it's on, that's on the well, it's still on Vita and it's on the Wii U right now. That does play homage. It's actually it? no longer on the Vita. Like if you have bought really? it, you can re-download it. But oh yes, yeah, because they removed it on the mobile, mobile PlayStation yeah, yeah. thing. It's on Steam and the Wii U, I believe, are the two yeah. places you can get it now. De definitely worth getting though this yeah, game, yeah. Uh, and the, and this plays homage to the ZX81 of the original. And basically, it so it gives you a very it, and it very much mimics that console with its very very basic concepts really where things were just sort of blocks um the the standout thing for the zx81 though fred which you might have seen from the pictures already is that keyboard if you thought the zx spectrum had a dumb keyboard <laughs> it's great it's like a sponge 
Pretty much, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a sponge and a bunch of stuff. Um, I think the other thing to point out is it was a much more simple um, computer, like out of the box. Yeah. Like it was the, right, one of the right. smallest. Right, You either bought the 1KB or the 2KB model. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just ran cassette tapes and a Z80 processor. But you could expand it to 64K. <laughs> If you wanted if you to. Wanted to. <laughs> I don't know um, anybody that did that. So. Well, it also had very basic um, monochromatic uh, resolution. Exactly, 64 yeah. by 48. Yeah. For mm. reference, most things of the time, including consoles, were, uh, were some variation of 320 by 240, which mm. was half the resolution. Uh, the Commodore Pet, though, does mm. come in at about that same resolution. The other thing that I thought was most notable was the fact that it sold... For a hundred bucks, yeah. In a time where microcomputers were three hundred to like fifteen, way cheaper, yeah. And they obviously corrected that with the Spectrum later, which was sold for a lot less than this. Less than a hundred bucks? Oh, not no, 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 no. Sorry, not like that. I I no, sorry. This was yeah. This one was cheap too. This was a hundred bucks. I've always said four hundred then. So. No, I'm sorry. The old, the closest thing to it was four hundred, which was oh, the, oh, sorry, the yeah, Trash yeah. eighty. The Trash eighty was uh, <laughs> four hundred. The TRS eighty, which you may not know that one around your parts, Jam. But mm. and for comparison, the Apple II Plus at the time was thirteen hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and of course, Sparky, we are about to talk about the Vic twenty. Take it easy. No, but should we should we get on that? No. Sure. Why don't Why don't we just we're gonna skip over. Uh, Oh, wait. Yeah, that was the next one. Look yep. at that. I thought it through. <laughs> In comparison, Commodore at this same time, this same year, releases the VIC-20. Now, the VIC-20 is significant to me because this is the this is the computer that transcends both our regions, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, did, were you familiar with and did you know people who bought a VIC-20? I don't know anyone that brought it. I have seen one over here. But so I've... maybe it's more of a U.S. thing. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. It definitely released in your neck of the woods. But mm. anyway, um, it's uh, it was intended to be more economic than the Pet. Now, have you ever heard of the Pet Jam, the Commodore Pet? I have. I, yeah, I've heard of the Commodore Pet. <laughs> All in one unit. It had the vector monitor, though, which is what screwed it up. Um, so this this came after the pet, which was selling for about nine hundred bucks and had a very basic display. It was a word processor, all in all. The Vic Twenty, on the other hand, ran basic mm-hmm. and was kind of a eight bit home computer very early in time, and it was it was pretty cheap as well. It was uh it was three hundred dollars when it premiered. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty impressive, and really, it is the building blocks of the sixty four. The Commodore 64, mm-hmm. like through and through. Ran cartridges and cassettes. Um, most games that play on the Commodore 64 also play on the VIC-20. It was just a, a simpler version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, people are already showing their love for it. Derek H. played yep. Omega Race on it. Raid on Fort Knox was one of his fa- uh, was one of Sparky Kestrel's favorite games on the VIC. Um Probably my favorite was, uh, and let me double check this. The Brits are going to destroy me if I'm wrong about this. <laughs> Hold on about that. <laughs> Hold, on. Hold on. Can't talk about this specific game unless I know exactly what I'm talking about. And I might be wrong. Oh. Now you get- <laughs> no, it was. Com- uh, the Minor 2049er. Mm-hmm. 
I think my Lost Treasures of Gaming was the VIC-20 version. Oh, wow. I think that was the version I played on that. I played quite a few, actually, VIC-20 games early into Lost Treasures of Gaming because they had lots of developers from that mm. time period. Um, I'm also trying to think... Yeah, anyway, you can you can look it up on the website. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, VIC-20 was very cool. Again, it was... Um, the VIC-20 versions of games were nowhere near as good as the C64 versions, though. That's true, but it was just interesting that basically it built the structure that was the Commodore 64, and then Commodore 64 just made it more of a game console. Because I don't believe the VIC-20 was in any way initially made for creating games, but it was so cheap that people started playing game and making games. Yeah. And Jam, there's apparently a big demo scene. You guys over in Great Britain love the demo scene. I could believe that. <laughs> so. Um also this uh this started off peek and poke. Remember peek and poke commands? Mm-hmm. Yeah, peek and poke are all kinds of fun. You can Google those. I don't feel the need to explain to you peek and poke. Um just seems dirty. <laughs> Sounds All right, Jim. You're up next. Back to the game you were originally going to talk so, about. So the game, yeah, that game I was going to talk about. So Ultima One, uh, First Age of Darkness by Origin Games, uh, programmed by a fella called Richard Garriott, or, or Lord yes. British, as he likes Lord to Lord British himself. <laughs> Fun. Wait, is Richard Garriott British? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, he was. Okay. Yeah, I thought so. I've just never mm -hmm. spoken with him, but. Uh, he spent most of his time in California. Yeah, space. I mean, I think space. He's out there, he likes he? space a lot. Uh, Derek H says there's a Vic 20 demo scene. Uh, I believe so. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and Derek then pokes six three five eight one comma zero. Um, I think that's a thumbs up. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, yeah, but, it's, but the um, ultimate ultimate release is on the Apple II computer, and yes. um, I mean I. I haven't played Ultima One. I know a, bit, a little bit about it, and we might be covering that in oh, a bit more detail later down yeah. the road on TH101. Um, but some of the points that are worth pointing out about Ultima One is that, uh, unlike the later games in this series, this game allowed, it was basically just a quick clarification what the Ultima games were about is that they were kind of Richard Garrett's kind of love letter to kind of D&D games in a way, uh, where you played uh, an avatar character and you basically just had, you went into this kind of fictitious world and you, you know, went on an adventure basically that's pretty much there was to it uh, yeah i don't remember if the avatar i think the avatar doesn't get introduced until three though i think you're right there yeah at least you don't become so. the avatar until that sort of later stage but it does do the whole kind of like you you're starting in the real world and you enter the world of uh, lord british's uh, area um welcome to my area welcome to my land uh, so, but, but um some of the things that are of note you start off in this kind of fantasy realm but it gets um it does get more experimental in this game where you you start <laughs> there and you go off into space you can't yes actually, of course you do of course you do which i thought was definitely worth mentioning but they kind of took that out a bit later which i think is a damn shame because that was I mean, something that just made the games have so much personality to them but I do love a couple of things, though, because uh, we kind of talked a little bit about this with Gary Butterfield on the uh, uh, something in D20s. I forgot the name of the exact episode, but it was the Dungeons & Dragons one, um, because this kind of basically did try to bring Dungeons & Dragons, and it kind of fused the two ideas, right? It had the first-person perspective in the yes. dungeons of mm -hmm. wizardry, but it had that kind of, I guess, Japanese, but it, it was really, uh, in a lot of things, that top-down third-person 
perspective when you were in the overworld. I also love that there are things like Bobbits. Mm-hmm. Did you know the Bobbit? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, race, I remember the that. The Hobbit-like yeah. race. Yeah, he just didn't <laughs> want to get sued. Uh, so I thought that was fantastic. So you could be a Bobbit. Yeah, Bobbit. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to be Balbo the Bobbit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and again, uh, most of the craziness that's in this. Oh, and you know what? I have to take back everything I just said. Nope, Gary, it was solely in Texas. I'm sorry. Uh, the reason I was thinking that was because I kept reading about California Pacific, which was the publisher on the Apple II. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, Garriott made Alec a, a, a Calabeth while at um, uh, University of Texas. And uh, with the money from that, he was able to help fund Ultima, which is really how, you know, this craziness came about. But yeah, I think, Jam, the reason you see less space and whatnot later on is because he no longer was making like, you know, Lord of the Rings meets heavy metal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he was, um, he was, uh, he was then being forced to publisher terms, you know, but I, I do think the avatar trilogy in particular is a better game for it. Mm. So, I think so. Um, These are, I should warn people the, this avatars are tough games to go back to though. If you've never stepped foot in the ultimate game, first age of darkness or ultimate three avatar. Oh, no, no, no. This one. Okay. <laughs> this, this original Ultima. This one's very novel. tough to go back to. Yeah. Um, in fact, the whole trilogy... It's funny because it was re-released as the Ultima trilogy on yeah. uh, the FM Towns, C64, a couple others. Um, and what ended up being the real trilogy was the Avatar trilogy, which I believe was 3, 4, and 5. Mm-hmm. Might have been 4, 5, and 6, but I don't think so. 4 is Quest of the Avatar. I know that much. But maybe it was 4, 5, and 6. Hell if I know. <laughs> I'll have to go back and look that up. But uh, anyway. <clears throat> so also uh, we have something new. We have a cat in our chat. And that was yeah. not intended to rhyme. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway. <laughs> All right. Moving on to things you're probably relatively familiar with, anyone. especially yeah. thanks to Crossy Road, um, is Frogger. Yeah. Konami releases Frogger. You'll notice when we talk about America and, and, and Europe, we know who the designers were. That was not the case in Japan. You did not have a personality in Japan. You were not a person. Um, Derek H says people are scared to say that Ultima kind of sucks. I'll say it right now. Ultima 1 kind of sucks. <laughs> and a Calabeth is fucking brutal, man. So, That's free to most people who have GOG. And, oh. it, it, yeah, it is free. You can get it free online Jesus anyway. Christ. Anyway, um, back to Frogger, which does not suck. This game was fantastic. Simplicity. Mm-hmm. at its best why did the frog cross the road <laughs> it's so easy to chase frog and not chicken at this time so yeah well it's because it's japan they're always kind of yeah. goofy but uh if you're not familiar with it uh the screen the vertical raster screen is broken up into two spots a road and a pond mm-hmm. and you have to dodge all the problems that come with it but it couldn't just be that easy right you had to fill five slots at the other side and they go from left to right. Yep. But the log that would be the front portion would be going in one direction or another. So if it was moving left, it would be very difficult to get the far left one. If it was moving right, it would be very difficult to get the far right one. And your obstacles included traffic, um, turtles that would drop down. And then of course, alligators that would pop up and try to eat you. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Um, did you play Frogger early on, Jam, or were you one of those people who got the Frogger remake on um, on uh, PlayStation One? 
I, oh, I, I actually don't have that game. I would like to get it though. But, so, but, um, but the, just for just for because that game is so crazy. Um, the no, I did play this game eventually on an original arcade cabinet over here, but I didn't play oh, nice. it back in the sort of the older days. I, I don't remember seeing an arcade cabinet at all for the longest time, actually. But it's such a it's just one control stick, which is fantastic. It's so one control stick, yeah. Two buttons, one player start, two player start. And if you played two players, you guys would switch off. You'd yeah. literally rotate. Yeah. And they had that. I just love the the cabinet as well. Is that kind of wood grain with the road? It's got that, like tire tracks across one side of it. Yes, the aforementioned um, John <laughs> <laughs> has a entire video on how to restore a Frogger. Cabinet. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I know, right? So. I wish I could afford it, but no, that ain't going to happen. So, <laughs> well, he lives in the East Coast, which is a lot easier thanks to various things like Richie Knuckles and his proximity to New York. Out here in out, – out, out with you in Europe, uh, in, oh. specifically the UK, and out here in central Kansas – if I find Frogger, somebody's getting a mint for it, you know, like that's just the reality. Of it. I, I, don't, it's, I don't think it's even possible to collect arcade cabinets in the UK because of how utterly expensive it would be. It would just be insane. Oh, and actually, Jam, fun fact. Frogger released in 1981 worldwide. It's one of the they few get, wow. arcade games <laughs> that even go. Europe got uh, in, oh, uh, in we 1981. Are yeah. So there you go. But great, but great game. I, 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 this is a game that is easy even go back to today, and it's just a ton of fun. And you just you mentioned the game that's obviously very inspired by it, which is Crossy Road, which has a massive kind of following. Which does start off as a chicken. For yeah, it does, for, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and Voss says the reason you're frogs is because frogs are smaller and more squishy than chickens. Or no, he's <laughs> suggesting is that uh, why. That might be why. Yeah. That sounds correct. Yes. <laughs> Although chickens look a lot cooler when you get a bunch of their plucker fat and you just squeeze <laughs> it with a tire, pops like a anyway. That was kind of gross. Anyway, um, you're up next, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, another another game that some people might be aware of, Donkey Kong, uh, was released by Nintendo, programmed by some fella called Shigeru Miyamoto. Um, and the only reason we know his name is because of all the shit he's done since. Otherwise, exactly, yeah, I we never would have mentioned him again. <laughs> interest, introduced a character called Jumpman. Uh, yes. Yeah, that fella. <laughs> Not to be mistaken for Commodore's Jumpman. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, and of course the infamous Donkey Kong as well. But yeah, but I think this—I I, would—I don't know if you would agree with me, Fred. But I think Donkey Kong main was more popular later. Really, it's uh, made famous more by famous documentaries like King of Kong. At least over here, it was anyway. I think, but mm, that's uh, not the case in America. Uh, yeah, probably not the case over in America. But this this game huge. isn't that common over here. Um, oh, okay. It's somewhat rare here. Um, it's common now, especially because some of these were conversions of radar scope. Yeah. Um, for more information on that story and various things, you can actually look up a. Uh, I, I called it storytelling, so that's an easy way to search for it because there's only a handful of those I did. But it was how Shigeru Miyamoto saved Nintendo. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it got but, more uh, popular later. <laughs> like I said, with um, with the popularity of the game itself, um, which is funny, isn't it? How that this game just got just it just exploded in popularity later down the road, rather than when it, uh, during the time. Yeah, well, it, it started a lot of interesting lawsuits uh, because once it did... See, uh, like, Jam, here it took off so much that Universal Studios oh, really? yeah. tried to sue Nintendo for copyright infringement of King Kong. Mm. And it's funny that, the, you know, the ultimate end to that was that uh, um, 
earlier in time, Universal Studios had made a King Kong film citing that it was um, public, um, that the original movie was public uh, domain. Mm -hmm. And that's why they could remake King Kong. And then here they are right after that, uh, uh, right after that 77 remake trying to claim it. uh, Because I believe, I forgot who originally made King Kong. But anyway. So yeah, that was all the fun stuff. It was a Universal um, film, wasn't it? So I, don't, I bet. Yeah, but this was Universal as well. My only guess is yeah. maybe Universal didn't want to have to pay licensing to somebody. Anyway, mm. for those curious uh, about Jumpman on the C64 by Epics, E-P-Y-X, yes, the same ones from California Games. There you go in the chat. Um, this was due, th- these lawsuits, was, was this the same year as Kirby as well? Good old Nintendo's no, favorite 19, fella. This was 1982. Ah, maybe before this that then. This is an old one. Um, but the uh, the Howard Lincoln was, I believe, the lawyer that oh, really? yeah. covered their ass, and that's why he got uh, – no, sorry, John Kirby, yeah, was the one yeah. who covered their ass. And that's – yeah, you're right. He's the reason why Kirby is named as such. So, But Ooh. anyway. Um, also, Jumpman, if people aren't familiar with it, was the name of Mario in Donkey Kong. He was later renamed to Mario. I do believe the girl is Pauline, and that's where you get Pauline. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a funny story as to uh, why his name is Donkey Kong because that was just a bad translation. But again, you can see my storytelling thing if you want that story. Mm-hmm. Donkey Kong, fantastic game. Yeah, people absolutely. think it kind of sucks nowadays, though. I'll be honest. Now, with you. <laughs> I was the opposite. <laughs> people seem to be turned around. It's a, it's a, it's a split kind of game. You know, I think the first time I played Donkey Kong Fred was in that I was in the N64 version of um, Donkey Kong 64 where it's a mini we game have to in that beat game. the first four levels <laughs> in order right, to yeah. that fucking cement factory every time. Every time. Anyway. <laughs> Fuck you, Cranky Kong. That's right, Cranky. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Anyway, uh, love a game. <laughs> let's get out Shigs. Let's get out Shiggy Miyamoto over here to fight me. Uh, anyway, um, next up is um, Namco. Uh, releasing Galaga. Yeah. Yeah, both North America and Japan gets it. Uh, this is uh, by Namco, published in America by Midway, which is why you see it in a lot of Williams Collection yes. stuff. Um, and it is the sequel to Galaxian. Now, what's interesting is Galaxian wasn't that popular, but it was basically the same idea. Uh, but Galaxian was much more derivative of Space Invaders, whereas Galaga switched things up a little bit. mm um, the patterns for which the creatures would come down were crazier. Your ship could get captured, and then you could do twin, sh- twin ships. You know, you could basically bet a life to get two ships. Mm-hmm. Um, there were bonus rounds. Uh, it was just all in all a better game. Um, and uh, I think there was a boss, too. I don't remember there being a boss. and I could be wrong, but... <gasps> I don't remember now. Um, it made a great oh, loading no, screen. The, the top it. fighters. Yes, yeah, right? <laughs> that patent's up now, by the way. I know, uh, yeah, that's why I was yeah. mentioning that. <laughs> so, Sparky Kestrel says that's an urban legend spider. Shigeru Miyamoto himself has said that his name actually was Donkey Kong from the start. Uh-huh. What? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, interesting, Sparky. Uh, the, the one I've got... Uh, granted, I did use David Sheff's book. So, for what it's worth, my sources were Shigeru Miyamoto in an interview with David Sheff lying to him. But, anyway. He was supposed to be called, like, Idiot Ape or something. But, anyway. 
Galaxian, Derek H's Galaxian Space Invaders, but more boring. <laughs> yeah, I, I Galaga's better. I still didn't really like it. I don't know. Do you like Galaga? Oh, I, I did Galaga. I prefer it's Galaxian, actually, personally, but that's my opinion. It just felt a bit faster. Well, yeah, I mean, Galaxian's not really a good game at all. So I guess that's the impressive thing, is that this is one of the first examples of you know, we can remake it and make it better, you yeah. know, and that literally happened. So that was, that was very cool. So, um, I definitely liked that. So, uh, all right, you're up. Uh, yeah. So, uh, next up the IMB, IMB 5150, IBM, IBM sorry. Um, AKA the IBM P PC released and standardized the term PC as personalized home use microcomputer. So that's a big deal really. <laughs> Yes, for uh, Jam. Have you ever heard of the term IBM compatible? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's kind of where this comes from and why it's so the origins. <laughs> yes, with prices starting at sixteen hundred dollars, which gave you sixteen k of RAM, a graphics adapter. There was a graphics card in it, <laughs> and no disk drives. Yep, and it ran uh, basic, I believe, but it would mm. later take on and embrace DOS. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, so what the hell do they call these things before they were called PCs? <laughs> Microcomputers? I don't know. I don't know. That box thing over there. So. Yeah, um, they basically what happened was in America the the PC standard became known as the IBM compatible for a long time. Mm -hmm. Compaq made game or made them. Eventually they called their line, the Presario Phoenix software did their stuff. American mega trends, Dell, um, but Dell gateway and HP and all that stuff. Those were later. Those were after IBM's were no longer called compatibles. They were called PCs, but, uh, and, um, they had all kinds of stuff. They had floppy disk drives. Um, Let's see here. The original PC's maximum memory using IBM parts was 256 KB of RAM. That's where you could fucking destroy shit. Mm -hmm. Run an Intel 8088 running 4.77 megahertz. Yeah. <laughs> In full color. With an NTSC 4x3 standard color burst frequency. That's selling it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you know mm -hmm. that when it first came out, the standard IBM PC was 64K of RAM, a 5.25-inch floppy drive, and a monitor mm -hmm. was sold for $3,000, <laughs> the equivalent of $7,800 today. Jesus. <laughs> and that was basically an Apple II. I mean, wow. really. Well, not an Apple II, but it was basically a Mac. Yeah. Which I don't think the Macs were that expensive, but maybe they were. Fuck, mm. maybe they were. I don't know. But yeah, there we could go on for days about IBM compatibles, but that's a very... Um, and Derek H. correctly says, weren't PCs still basically IBM compats up until Windows 98? I believe that was when. It was 95 or 98 where they stopped saying IBM compatible and started saying PC, but uh, yeah. Um, and Sparky Kestrel says even today's PC motherboards still use some of the old IBM compatible architecture. That is very true. Mm -hmm. And if you want to read up on that, maybe someday I'll do a hardware profile on the microcomputer architecture of a motherboard. But uh, that's for a different day and for a much more hardcore group. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, next up, 
NEC releases the PC-8801 in Japan. The biggest mm-hmm. reason I bring this up is this never came over here. Mm-hmm. Um, the PC-8801 uh, was, uh, was another Z80-based computer, um, microcomputer. So, um, Jam, I don't know if you can tell me what this kind of comes in comparison to. I didn't get a price on it, but uh, it ran uh, 64 KB of RAM. It had 48 KB of VRAM. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and, uh, oh, and it had the same sound chip as the Sinclair Spectrum. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So it was just basically a beefy Spectrum yeah, running like a Z80 it, yeah. at 4 megahertz. Reason it's important to us, and it got lots of updates. Eventually, mm-hmm. the PC-88 VA3 uh, would have um, uh, 72 KB of ROM. 816 KB of RAM, mm-hmm. um, eight megahertz processor, and uh, a Yamaha synth channel, very similar to the Mega Drive. Wow. So mm. yeah, um, this is probably big, big for that that early on as well to have that. Oh yeah, um, I think the biggest thing was the library. The biggest reason I bring it up is the library. Mm. Um, developers on this were Enix, Square, Sega, Nihon, uh, Nihon Falcom. Bondi, How Laboratory, ASCII, Pony Canyon, still my favorite fucking name for a developer ever. <laughs> uh, Technology and Emp- Entertainment Software, Wolf Team, Dempa, Champion Soft, Microcabin, PSK. The reason I bring all these names up is you'll notice these are names that usually were isolated to certain consoles, right? Mm-hmm. Like Sega never was on Nintendo's consoles, um, and How Laboratory was only on you know consoles but here was where they all came together right um some of the earliest games on the pc 8801 that saw their creation thanks to companies like game arts and konami was snatcher we've done Mm -hmm. a game club on that fexter or teguza have you ever played (laughs) fexter it's an interesting game you should look it up it's t-h-e-x-d-e-r uh dragon slayer rpg maker and east of course falcom coming in there with east which is an interesting title. I'm wise. playing East Book 1 and 2. Yeah, Wise. Jesus <laughs> Christ. I'm playing East Book 1 and 2 right now on the PC Engine CD. So, um, Also, Nintendo licensed Hudson Soft to make a bunch of Famicom games. Ported over to the PC-88. So, Excite Bike, Balloon Fight, Tennis, Donkey Kong 3, Golf, Ice Climber, Mario Brothers. A version of Super Mario Brothers called Super Mario Brothers Special. Punchball Mario Brothers. And... Um, and there was another one all made uh, oh and uh, i believe dragon warrior all made wow. their way over to um the pc8801 mm-hmm. and super mario brothers special is exclusive to the pc8801 i don't know how much different it is but something to think about so sparky kestrel says pony canyon is the name i see regularly as a sponsor in many anime series i watch wow maybe that's what they've become so Mm, there we go (laughs) anyway um but uh yeah so uh pc8801 was the original model of the microcomputer but yes it was uh it did have a they were all based off of zilog z80 processors which very popular for that time period um you can see a lot of the discussion about that stuff, both in Cron CD and you and I have talked about it a decent amount. I think we mm-hmm. did a Master System episode that yeah. talked about it a decent amount. We also talk about it a lot in the Sega arcade stuff. The Z80 processor was very popular with Sega, 
Europe <laughs> <laughs> and various other 8-bit processors at the time. Anyway. All right, Jam, you're next up. So next up, a, a game called Castle Wolfenstein by Mew, Mew Software was released for the Apple II computer. And despite what some people think, a lot of people will actually consider this is the first stealth title that was released. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I would say that. And very not not to be confused with Wolfenstein 3D, which came a lot later down the road. Um, However, um, id Software did... I think, or it might have been Apogee at the time. They were all kind of mixed together. But yeah. John Carmack has come out and said, um, you know, yes, this was based off of the Muse software games. And I think Muse got their blessing for it. Yeah, yeah, that did, so, yeah. yeah. And um, basically what the, how this game is different is it's a kind of a top-down view of you as a character going from room to room, kind of stealthily avoiding Nazi soldiers, really. Um, yeah, because combat's not a great idea. mm so. It is present. You can like pick up knives and stuff, but um, but it and but it but it's a very very kind of you know non-confrontation game. Well, and it's weird because it's a side scroller or it's a top down, but y- the characters look like they're laying yeah, down they, on the ground yeah. basically. Because <laughs> it like if you look at a screenshot, you might almost think it's a platformer, a la like Load Runner or Spelunker or something, or even Mario Brothers to that effect. Um, whereas it's not, mm. you're actually navigating like it's top down, but I guess they just thought that looking at the tops of the head was kind of dull and stupid, which it is actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I get that. Um, but, uh, and this was ported all over the place. Uh, yeah. the C64 version is the one I've played. So, mm-hmm. and it is in DOS. So of course, DOS box, you can run it. So, which one had Mecha Hitler? Yes, Kluger, that would be... I believe that was only in uh, only Wolfenstein the, 3D. Yes, that's yes. only in that version. <laughs> uh, sorry, in the Wolfenstein 3D series uh, was the premiere of it. It was not in Wolfenstein, Castle Wolfenstein or Return to Castle Wolfenstein. Or, sorry, Beyond Castle Wolfenstein. That's what it mm-hmm. was. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, so... Or was the sequel Return to Castle Wolfenstein? The, the No, uh, Beyond Castle Wolfenstein. Okay, there we go. I was going to say, the, the sequel, obviously, was Beyond Castle Wolfenstein. Yeah, Return to Castle Wolfenstein, yes, everybody. That's... I'm aware of the PC Xbox uh, <laughs> yeah, sequel to Wolfenstein 3D that did come out and contained Wolfenstein 3D in the game, uh, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Once you so, finished it. Once you finished it, yeah. But you should have finished it. Yes. Killer ending. That <laughs> never got really brought back up. Because um, doesn't Death's Head, like, isn't he a completely different function in the next Wolfenstein? What's the next Wolfenstein after Return to Castle Wolfenstein? Is it the 2009 Raven Software one? It's just Wolfenstein, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they totally they totally shit the bet on how they handled yeah, that. Yeah, that's a shame. Anyway, yeah. That's that's for a Wolfenstein podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. That's not it. Let's see here. Uh, we can look over what came out in 1981. I don't really want to do too much with this. Anything you want to bring up in particular? There were a lot of games released. That's why we're kind of you know, just picking the notable ones. Um, I, mean, I, th- I thought we kind of like mentioned like the main ones in that, that little from what we brought up already. Um, yeah. I guess you've already mentioned. Somebody's but- going to be pissed. We didn't mention Kaboom. <laughs> you know, sorry. Um, ice Kaboom's hockey. great, but yeah. <laughs> well, ice hockey, if you're talking about the Nintendo one, yeah, no, totally yeah. be on your side, but uh, uh, let's see. I do believe Centipede came out, but I'm going to go on okay. record and say, I don't really like Centipede, but. Well, that's fine. That's fine. 
I mean, Quix was one that came out of arcades. I mean, it's quite... Ah, Quix, yeah. Mm-hmm. Q-I-X. It, <laughs> it is what it is. So. Uh, Tempest? I mean, that's kind of big. So. Yeah, Tempest is a big one. Full disclosure, I just dropped the ball on that one. So let's talk about that real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, Vector-based. So. Vector-based and used a spinner. Spinners! Yeah. Not spinners. Tiny yeah. cabinet. Spinners. Yes. Yes, it was. It was pretty short, pretty small. Um, but Tempest was designed by David Thur. Uh, 1981 vector-based game. Looked so gorgeous with, um, with its uh, uh, vertical vector colored graphics. There is nothing. Have you ever seen this in an arcade format, Jam? Yeah, in, in an arcade machine of this, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing that looks like Tempest. Mm. It's very, very unique. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you can even maybe there might be a port on Vectrex. It still doesn't hold up. Mm. It's just amazing as an arcade cabinet. But because it's a vector monitor, uh, every single one of them is uh, pretty quick to the deathbed and can't be replaced. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, but it's got kind of like that. It it, it it created and kind of killed its own genre, which was the tube shooter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because you played a I love character. that name. Tube yeah, Tube Shooter. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if there's any others. Hold on. This it's searchable. The Tube Shooter. Where is it? Oh God. <laughs> it's a form of shmup. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Tube Shooters features uh, craft flying through abstract tubes. Oh, I didn't think of the most obvious one. Nitrous oxide N2O is a tube shooter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I can't think of any others, but I'm sure there are. Um, mm-hmm. Write in. Tell us what tube shooters you like. <laughs> Maybe we'll feature them for Appreciation Month, which will return this March. But, uh, yeah, yeah. You you basically spun around and you just shot at things, and it got pretty frantic. You got crazy, yeah. Um, but it was a lot of fun, even though I sucked at it. Yeah, I, I was never any good at this game. I mean, um, they it, it you mentioned about sort of that there was never really ever games like this the only ever attempt that they kind of did was obviously there was tempest 2000 for the jaguar and uh, tempest 3000 for the new one do yeah. not fin- forget tempest 3000 for the new one <laughs> then the last one was the spiritual successor which was i believe it's called txk that was released on vita oh yeah well the then, problem is is that yeah um david thur has a sort of yeah history of trying to make the money he feels he deserves which i'm not here to say whether he does or doesn't um, yeah of course not but no. but y- yeah it's i don't know <laughs> uh and you're talking about there yeah there's txk and there was also space giraffe which uh which is having its own legal well. issues txk it had it's been having problems for ages because of who sort of with uh, i think i believe atari was for the longest time trying to shut well, them down well Dave's not accepting the fact, and I talk about him like he's my buddy. Dave Thur is not <laughs> accepting the fact that um, he doesn't own this game. He mm. may have come up with the idea, but he worked for a company. He worked for Atari, and they own the rights on it. Yeah. So um, Tempest kept Jeff Minter employed for a while. That's true. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and Derek fun. does say, uh, Gyrus says hi. Yes, that is a tube shooter as well. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And Sparky oh. Kestrel talking about Tempest is awesome. Is, uh, there was an unofficial conversion to the C64 called Axis Assassin, which is a great name. <laughs> he says it's a great version of it, but Axis Assassin is fantastic. And just in case people don't know what the nuance is, um, I did an article about it, or maybe even a podcast about it, about like Phantom Hardware or something. But uh, Nuon was a DVD player that also played games. 
And yes, you can still buy them. They're on eBay today for about 100, 200 bucks or something. And you can burn all the games to DVDs and just play them. But uh, yeah, they basically ported Tempest 2000 as Tempest 3000 over to the new one. There was also Tempest X3 for the PlayStation, which was Tempest 2000 also brought over. But yeah, Tempest is, sorry to have jumped into it, but Tempest is, is a game that, that deserves uh, its moment in the sun. So um, let's see here. And now I want to stretch this a little longer because I think we're going to stop at 1981. Okay. Yeah, no problem. There's a yeah. lot, as you can see in the, the thing here, Jam, that That's starts it. in 1986. And I just don't think that with 10 minutes left, we really would be mm-hmm. appropriate to to jump into it so let's see here let's see if there's anything else i'm missing uh anything you see on this list? that's what uh, i'm just getting uh, i might as well mention briefly going back to it is that quicks game which is basically a very very oh, straightforward yeah. arcade game really all you're doing is you are it's a big box you reveal naked ladies yes i've played this yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely oh, no. yeah that, that was the other version <laughs> but the um yeah well before before the naked lady oh and it is pronounced kicks okay oh is it is that how you say it so yeah and the only reason we know that in america is because we had a cereal called kicks as well um and that's how they pronounce it so and, and, yeah basically Maybe. Sorry? Maybe Kick Serial was damn it. Kick Serial was KIX. <laughs> Never mind. That's probably why it was called QIX because uh, it was released by Taito um, mm-hmm. in 1981. So, but you basically are just draw. You're a you're a little sort of spark and you're drawing lines, but you've got to avoid this kind of. It's a weird little shape. It's this like, kind of like it's the kicks. Yeah, that's the that's what it is. But it's like this. What it is is this like set of lines. It's kind of spiraling around this little map. And you know, it's it, it is very. You know nice. what it is? It's it's a screensaver from yeah, After it, Dark right, collection uh, <laughs> that, that predates it. In fact, After Dark may have called it Quicks. I don't remember, mm. but yeah. Funny enough, the the first time I played this game was actually on the original Game Boy. <laughs> so a lot of people did. Um, it this game is awesome everywhere. It worked great in arcades. It worked great on portables. It worked great at home. I had Kicks on the NES. It wasn't a particularly fantastic (laughs) port, but it existed. Mm. It was just a thing. Why not? Um, And the joke that I made was that later on in time, because what you're doing is revealing as much of the real estate as you can. It gets harder as you enclose the kicks into a certain area. Mm. Later on in time, this would stretch out and become uh, you are when you take over a, a board, you reveal a picture. And one of the quickest one was gals panic, which was, uh, pornographic at first anime pictures and then um eventually i think they did have digitized females so wow (laughs) yeah real nudity and yes of course most mame um in most mame collections you will immediately go through and eliminate all the mahjong and all of the kicks clones (laughs) to be honest with you other than original kicks so the um and the the original one is basically when you revealed the it basically just turned to be a solid blue or red basically it's pretty mm-hmm. straightforward. It's swapped back and forth yeah. so you could keep track of what you did, but yeah. And yeah, that was basically it. Um, <laughs> trying it's to see. Lunar Lander. Was Lunar Lander this year? It says it says um video game series. So um let me just double check it. So oh you're ooh. using yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Hold on. No, no, Leland didn't start here because that was way before this. So I thought that um, earlier. Yeah, yeah. That's why you can't trust the Wikipedia's. Yeah, but uh, um, Voss says I played that 
Kakoma Nights in Busyland game a crap ton as a kid. I think it's a Quicks knockoff. Loved it. Now now he's got me interested. Hold on. Kakoma Nights in Busyland game. This is fantastic. Oh my god. <laughs> um Well, I'm trying to see. Is it Kicks? Oh my god, it is Kicks. It doesn't look like Kicks at first, but it totally is. Jam, this is a SNES game. Oh, really? <laughs> and, uh, oh, no, it wasn't, I, on, it wasn't on Genesis. It was on SNES. It was yeah. on SNES, confirmed. In America and Japan. I don't know if it got PAL releases, but, uh, yeah. It's fantastic. Oh, I think it was Kakoma Night in Japan. Ah. So it means you guys might have gotten it. It's not dirty. No, I knew it wasn't dirty. It was on the SNES. Um, but, uh, yeah, so but interesting all right well i think we've got 1981 covered i don't want to stretch it further than it needs to so mm-hmm. in a shocking display we are going to end <laughs> this now and you have to wait five years before we tackle it again <laughs> but uh, anyway um so well, people are gonna hold us to that <laughs> yeah and we will and we will um Okay, Derek says uh, red was used when you slow draw, which uh, slow draw, which was yeah, it would move at half the speed, uh, so you got more points because you were risking yourself a lot more. So anyway, um, so I want to thank everybody for coming out. Thank you, Chatters. Thank you, All Games. Thank you, TC. Um, uh, and uh, we will be back next week, maybe live, maybe not. And we will, uh, if we are not live, we get the the glory of having a special guest who is very knowledgeable so uh looking forward to and looking forward to doing a show with me tendy so that would be cool um so watch for mass effect our game club is um jade empire uh i believe i'm gonna have the it's like a 30 minute documentary from the special edition oh yeah going live this weekend that's cool it'll probably be something i'll kind of roll out of bed hungover on actually i'm not drinking this new year's so i won't even be hung over i'll roll out of bed early probably on my way to the gym now the gym will be closed new year's day anyway i'll roll out of bed i'll get some coffee and i'll post uh that documentary probably on new year's day friday or saturday it'll be sometime around then um but because of a very limited schedule i have this weekend jam we might have to delay the game club so i'm sorry and we may be making some changes to the game club but i haven't talked to jam about it but i think they are positive changes Mm -hmm. i think this will be very good so we will talk about it but thank you everybody for coming out clue drew special shout out to you um this will be the last show he's able to join um live i'm guessing he has a previous engagement that will hold him back but uh, yeah definitely Uh, come check us out at allgames.com 7 p.m every tuesday it's been great having you um so yeah with that uh, we're looking forward to another 26 or for a new 2016 mm-hmm. with lots of fun stuff and hopefully shortly i can get my ass into uh into another cron cd so um sweet we get that going I've, I've got a new process which i think will streamline stuff and make it quicker where i'm going to do uh i'm going to play then write the write-up then record it and then capture the footage. And I think that will help. So mm-hmm. we'll see. We'll see. Um, but, uh, or, and then edit the footage, not capture the footage. So anyway, 
But uh, anyway, all right, guys. Well, uh, have a good one and uh, stay tuned because, (laughs) yes, there's lots of interesting stuff. Just in case people are wondering, I have been a little delayed, but in the upcoming week, I'm going to do a article on Magic the Gathering. Um, I got the Microprose game to work, so it'll also tell you how you can do that as well Mm -hmm. Um, because it's kind of abandonware at this point. Uh, So I've got my time with that. Uh, Undertale, which is a kind of neo-retro game. It's in the retro style. I've played through that, so I will be getting a review live soon. Mm. And then Jam and I have recently checked out the massive um, (laughs) modern-day shmup Darius Burst, which just hit Steam, PS4, and Vita, and it does have a pretty staggering price tag. And so um, I think short answer is if you know what it is and you're in for it, it's worth the money. Absolutely. But we will definitely delve into what that is and also get a quick look live on the YouTube show mm-hmm. uh, video and everything. So anyway, stay tuned for those. In the meantime, peace Thanks, guys. out. Mm-hmm.